Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the final Money Talk of the week as it's a public holiday here in Hong Kong tomorrow. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your favourite podcast app. Or go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and follow one of the links there. You can also get in touch with me there. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. It's Thursday the 25th of May and in today's business and finance headlines, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said on Wednesday his party's negotiators would return to the White House to try to finish out negotiations on the debt ceiling, but he warned the two sides were still far apart on a number of issues. The two parties have yet to reach a deal to avert a first ever US default, which could occur as early as June the 1st, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Minutes from the Fed's FOMC's May meeting show that increased downside risks in the US economy made its officials less certain about the need to further lift interest rates. Almost all participants commented that downside risks to growth had increased because of the possibility that banking sector developments could lead to further tightening of credit conditions and weigh on economic activity, the minutes said. UK inflation in April saw a smaller decline than the Bank of England had forecast, dashing hopes that the UK central bank could soon pause its current cycle of interest rate increases. Consumer price inflation fell to 8.7% last month, down from 10.1% in March, but it missed the Bank of England's forecast of 8.4% and remains well above the central bank's target of 2%. And the core rate, which excludes food and energy, jumped higher to 6.8%. That's the highest since March 1992 and well above forecasts of 6.2%, suggesting there's more underlying inflationary pressure than hoped. President Xi Jinping called Wednesday for China and Russia to deepen trade, economic and energy ties. President Xi met Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin in Beijing. It was Mr Mishustin's first visit to China since he became Prime Minister in 2020. Mr Xi reaffirmed his support for Moscow's core interests and said Beijing was willing to expand new growth points in bilateral cooperation with Russia. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory and Nitin Dialdis, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Also with me to discuss the decarbonisation of the Greater Bay Area will be Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange. U.S. financial markets faltered Wednesday as policymakers struggled to reach an agreement on raising the debt ceiling. On Wall Street, stocks extended their falls into a fourth day. The S&P 500 lost 0.7% to end at 4,115. The Dow dropped for a fourth straight day, declining 256 points or 0.8% to close at 32,800. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.6% lower to settle at 12,484. After the closing bell, shares of chipmaker NVIDIA surged more than 25% to an all-time high after booming demand for artificial intelligence processors buoyed its sales forecast well beyond Wall Street expectations. NVIDIA said it expected about $11 billion in the current quarter, far parts surpassing expectations of $7.1 billion in sales. And NVIDIA stock is up 109% so far in 2023, mostly driven by optimism stemming from the company's leading position in the market for AI chips. 
Short-term Treasury yields held near two-decade highs Wednesday as investors fretted over the looming debt ceiling deadline. The yield on Treasury bills that mature in June, around the date the government could run out of money, shot 18 basis points higher to 5.79% and they did reach as high as 5.88% overnight. The rate's at its highest level in more than 20 years, surpassing levels since before the financial crisis began in 2007. The US dollar index rose 0.4% on Wednesday to its highest level since March the 20th, and the Chinese offshore renminbi fell to the lowest level of 2023 so far as a new COVID-19 variant spreads across China, threatening the country's economic recovery. This morning, offshore yuan is trading at 7.06.5 per US dollar, marking its weakest level since December 2022. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index tumbled 315 points, or 1.3%, to a more than two-month low of 19,116 and close to its lowest point of the year. The slide looks set to continue this morning, with futures indicating the Hang Seng will open another 250 points lower. The CSI 300 index of the largest listed companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen erased all of its gains for the year. The index fell 1.4%, leaving it uh, leaving it down 0.3% in 2023 so far. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Nitin Dialdas, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Very good morning to you, Nitin. Good morning. Um, let's start with the, uh, the debt ceiling um, talks that are going on in the US. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said his party's negotiators are going to return to the White House to try and finish off the negotiations, but he warned they're still too far apart. Um, Andrew, you've been fairly relaxed so far um, about this. Markets also have been reasonably calm, although they are showing signs now of getting more nervous about what's um, going on. Are you getting more nervous? Not in the slightest, actually. I'm completely soporific, not only because I have seen this happening too many times in my long career. Actually, since 2000, there have been eight times of a cliffhanger and uh, all it's eventually sorted out. And also, Peter, it is just a lie that the U.S. government has never closed. I can Mm. think since the year 2000, uh, possibly going back a little bit to 1990, of three occasions where actually they locked up the national parks, they locked up the state, uh, the the sort of, uh, I will call it Ministry of Agriculture, they locked up uh, Ministry of Trade, they locked up the Foreign Department, except Defence, for a few days, but they actually literally locked them up. If you rang on the door, they will not open it. So closing uh, the US government is a a very, uh, let's say, theatrical movement. The rest of it is finding enough money to pay interest on the short-term debt. That also has happened in the past. Suddenly, some money was found because, and I'll finish now, because default means two things. It means I don't pay capital. I don't, sorry, I don't repay capital. I don't pay uh, monthly or yearly or whatever it is, interest payment, or I do both. So it takes quite a bit of an effort to do both. 
Mm. There isn't going to be a debt default on June the 1st, though, is there? Because what will happen is, as you as you just gave the example, um, the US government will do other things first to save money, like closing the national parks, maybe not paying Social yeah. Security benefits before yeah. uh, they actually default. Exactly, exactly. And uh, uh, what uh, Yellen rather mischievously is not pointing out is uh, money has been found in the past. In other words, Peter, what I'm saying is, is I've seen this movie again and again and again in the past. And it is really immature for them to be doing this. Incidentally, uh, the ratings of the United States, now I'm sticking my neck out, if I remember well, they were cut in the past. Mm. And really nothing happened. Yep, they were, weren't they? Uh, I think it was in yeah. 2011, S&P yeah. and the other agencies yeah. cut uh, the US debt rating down from its AAA grade. So um, it is... It isn't, it isn't that I know better, I'm so cool, calm and collected that nothing flashes me okay, or flashes me. It is simply, it is an old movie replayed. Shame on them. Nitin, are you cool, calm and collected about this? Yeah, I agree with Andrew. But I mean, I think we've also got to be a little bit careful because it's always the same story until it's not. And okay, and one thing that I was thinking about actually is that this is the f- first time when we've really seen such bipartisan polls being stuck to the ground mm. and you know you've got massive divides between the democratics uh, the democrats and the republicans and they don't want to shift and normally you know there's few you know you always see them concede a little ground here and there and all this but i think since the trump era it's become very very much this is our side that's your side and we're not going to cross over no matter what the other side does it's good as the other side might propose um, so that's my one caution, but like Andrew said, we've seen this plenty of times before. But why this is different this time is because you're really saying there are some extremists in Congress who are happy to, um, to you know, to go and breach that debt ceiling if necessary if they don't get their way. Yeah, and I, that, that's that's where the caution comes in, hundred uh, percent. It's very much that. How extreme are you going to go? But are you, at the same time, I think all of them are nationalists above everything. So. I don't think they want to see their country default. And you close a few parks to start with. You close, you know, Ministry of Finance. You you, you close everything until you get to the Ministry of Defence. But how much is that going to annoy your citizens? Because that's Mm -hmm. also going to play a part in who you're going to vote for. Who the blame lies, or where where will the blame go? Will it go to the Democrat and the uh, you know president side, or will it go to Kevin McCarthy and the Republican side? We don't know that. Um, and both sides will be spitting their rhetoric to blame the other side. We know that that is for sure. Um, so I think there's also a risk in terms of letting it default because then you're just throwing a dart at a dartboard in terms of which side the uh, population comes down on. But I, I, I do think, you know, come June, sorry, maybe May 31st, even on June 1st itself, there will be an agreement. Andrew, there is a real economic cost. It is also interesting to observe uh, the complete stiff upper lip coming out of Japan and China, which are two of the major foreign holders of uh, US government debt. And they will be the first in line in inverted commas if he defaults. And also Mm. because the US dollar carries on strengthening. Hello? (laughs) It does? Yes, it does. Mm. (laughs) Well, it should be. Yeah, it's on the back of the fact that the the treasury yields yields are are rising. rising (laughs) Potentially, you could default, right? So you need to be compensated for that. So it's kind of an interesting play on that. And with China and Japan, I wonder which side China actually... Do they care more about their debt or do they actually think 
this is going to weaken US and that's going to increase strengthen their position. So I wonder which side they're trying to play. Yeah, but this will be anything. This will be a classical example of shooting yourself in the foot in order to to well to hurt your opponent. I don't think the Chinese for one moment are sitting there thinking, "Oh, goody, we are long, we're going to lose millions in defaulted payments." <laughs> and that will teach the United States a good lesson. No, you won't. Especially when their economy is in the state it is at the moment. I don't think they can afford it. But yeah, you never know. Who knows how these guys think at the moment? And Andrew, what's the, there is a real economic cost to this, isn't there, for for the United States? Because interest rates are rising. We're seeing, you know, on very short term debt that expires around this time. Yeah. They've shot up to two decade highs. Um, so, Andrew, there is a real economic cost, isn't there? Because interest rates are going up on on bond uh, bond yields are going up. It's increasing the cost of funding uh, for for companies. There is a real cost to this. Yeah, but uh, that that will all, you know, once they have set the ceiling, all this is going to collapse back. I wouldn't say to normal. It will it will take out all the all the excess of risk. So again, you know, if it, if it if it increased the cost of funding for one month, I don't think we're going, all going to die. <laughs> Nitin, the markets they they've been fairly. Um, sort of sanguine so far, although you have seen bond yields going up, we are seeing the dollar strengthening, but stocks are starting to get nervous as well now. Are we starting to see the beginnings of maybe a major market reaction to this? I think um, it's, you, you say major reaction, I mean, the Dow was down 0.4, 0.5%, NASDAQ, oh, sorry, or NASDAQ was down 0.5%. So it wasn't exactly like a massive sell-off, and we haven't seen any any massive sell-off go on. So from that perspective, I don't, I don't think the market's being unreasonable in the sense they're trading cautiously, but I don't think they're in panic mode yet. Mm. Maybe if we get to next week and you know the deadline is right there and we still haven't uh, reached an agreement, you might start seeing some panic. But at the moment, I think, like Andrew said, and everyone's kind of tired of the same story. It's a bit like Hollywood. There's no creativity. No creativity. Even the way they're doing this, there's no creativity. It's the same story that's been played out to the team. Andrew, in the markets, it's normally when, when you have sort of political crises like these or economic issues, starts to show up first in the currency, in, in the bond markets, which is pretty well what we're seeing, isn't it? We have seen uh, bond yields moving up. We're seeing the US dollar now um, strengthen as well. And now stocks are starting to play catch up maybe a little bit. The answer is, is yes, we have seen all that. And uh, the same way, actually, if I cast back uh, of what actually happened, in uh, cliffhanger events in United States, I really don't recall a market crash. In other words, something that will see the Dow go down, I don't know, 4 or 5% on a single day. So, uh, as uh, Nitin said, yes, trading cautiously. What a lovely word. I like to trade. I like to trade uncautiously. <laughs> that's how I trade. That's that, that, that getting back to nineteen ninety, right? When everything just went crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now, minutes from the Federal Open Market Committee's May meeting showed that increased downside risks in the U.S. economy made its officials less certain about the need to further lift interest rates. Almost all participants commented that downside risks to growth and upside risks to unemployment have increased because of the possibility that banking sector developments could lead to further tightening of credit conditions and weigh on economic activity. The thing is, Nitin, though, despite these minutes, um, the Fed is rather divided, isn't it? Because we've got some now um, saying that, uh, including Jay Powell, that we maybe need to uh, pause and assess where things are. But then you have got other um, hawkish uh, Fed commentators like Neil Kashkari for the Minneapolis Fed president. He's saying that interest rates are going to go north of 6%. So where do you fit in this? 
I think the banking sector is going to uh, win out in that sense. So I think it will be um, a wait-and-see approach. So I don't think we'll see rate rises in the near term. Obviously, if they can't get inflation back down, then at some point they might need to raise a little bit again. But I think at the moment, you know, what you're seeing in the regional banks, it, it just means that you... And in terms of the fact that the unemployment numbers are starting to creep slightly up, I think both of those factors are going to um, play into the into the Fed's hands and they're just going to just wait and see. They've always been accused of doing too much. Um, so I think now they probably will want just want to wait and see it. And at this level, I think... It's pretty much a fair, fair level um, for, for where we are at the moment. Andrew, Andrew, where do you stand? You, you've been um, leaning on the side of further rate hikes, haven't you? Oh, 100%. Um, and uh, do you still think that? Yeah, very much so. And actually, I, I simply base that on what the Fed tells us, not on what I think. Okay, inflation is 5%. Okay, uh, target inflation is 2%. Hello? 2%. The Fed has been completely silent what is the trade-off between every 25 basis points increase in interest rates versus inflation falling? Possibly because they don't know what it is. Mm. Well, okay, here we are. I don't know either, but I made a very simple calculation. Really, long-term real interest rates roughly equal GDP growth. Remember, this is all uh, Mickey Mouse economics, but it is a little bit better than what we're getting out of the Fed. So if, if real interest rates is going to go up to 2%, then uh, right now, with the inflation at 5%, then interest rates should go up another extra 200 basis points to give us a real interest rate of 2%. So if somebody was to ask me how far it will still go, I will say ceteris paribus. Remember that? Everything else remaining the same, which it never does. Okay, then interest rates could easily go up another 200 basis points. Mm. But uh, given that we don't know... Um, how much each 25 basis points increase is, is sort of hitting inflation. Would it make sense now to pause for a little bit and, and assess what the hit has been to the, to the economy, maybe for one or two months and before? Well, we have, we have been told that it might take up to six months for increases in interest rates to percolate through. Well, the Fed has increased by 500 basis points. Inflation did come down from eight to five. So, well, there you go. We have an extra 300 basis points that it came down. But that was over a year period, and it seems now stuck at the 5% level. So uh, I'm clearing my throat, and I will stick to my point. I will say, yes, interest rates will increase, not can increase, will increase. And by how much? I said on the basis of my very simplistic estimates, another 200 basis points. Nitin, do you think uh, a pause would make sense? Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I think a pause... <laughs> I'm on the other side this time, Andrew, sorry. Um, I, I think a pause makes sense. And I think Andrew's right in the sense we're still running at 5% inflation. Uh, but it has come down from 8%. And 8% wasn't... You know, it was towards the end of last year as well when it was running about 8%. So over the last, say, five, six months, it has come at, come down 300 basis points. We're starting to see that trickle through. And... I think as you go forward, because you're coming from a higher price base, that inflation number should continue to decrease. Now, what it decreases down to, that's what we've got to figure out. Um, but say it goes down to 3.5%, we're only half half a percent off what the uh, Fed target rate would be. So I think at this point, it's it's probably worth just taking a step back, maybe for the next two meetings, just have a look, see what's, go- you know, what's happening um, in terms of inflation. And then... If it's still running high, it's still running at these five, five and a half, six percent levels. Fine, increase then. But at the moment, I think with the way the regional banks are performing, you also have to look at that side of it. I'm not talking about 
you know, markets. I know nobody, you know, the Fed doesn't care what's going on in the markets, as in the stock markets. But I think they do care what's going on with regional banks and what's going on in terms of the employment numbers. And with those starting to either flatten out or regional banks being in, certain, uh, in quite big trouble, they have to take a little bit of break and, you know, make sure that they stabilise as well. Andrew, I want to ask you about the UK. Um, inflation there, it did come down. It hit 10.1% in March. It's at 8.7% now. Still, though, higher than what the Bank of England was forecasting, well above its 2% target. I mean, it, it's still shockingly high, isn't it, um, in the UK, when you consider inflation's more than twice um, what it is in the US. It's much higher than what it is in the Eurozone. This leaves the Bank of England in quite a big hole, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's interesting part also of for a change i saw something that i thought it was sarcastically opposite uh people said well core inflation went up from 6.2 to 6.8 percent and that's bad news okay and that is excluding uh little uh non-necessities such as food and oil <laughs> <laughs> i know i know i know you, you want to see only the sticky part and not uh and not the the volatile part, but uh, it is it, it is a little bit sad. Okay, um, yes, uh, I, I reckon they 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 may they or not they may uh, invariably they will have to increase interest rates, uh, and and the pause is I don't, I don't see the pause there. Mind you, they have all done the usual thing. They went from zero to four and a half percent in eleven moves. So to some extent matches in inverted commas what the Fed has done roughly. Mm-hmm. Okay, ten moves from zero to 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 five percent. So not that not that they imitate the Fed by all means, because uh, the sterling is not pegged to the to the US dollar, but um, it says that so a long long uh, mumbling reply, yes, uh, it doesn't look good and uh, yes, increases in interest rates are very much uh, in the cards. I, I'm always amused by statis- statisticians who calculate inflation rates who then go on to say, if we actually leave out the things that are going up, there's no inflation. <laughs> um, and, and they do seem to have a habit of doing that, don't they? Well, yeah, uh, Peter, I did my PhD on the Soviet Union, so I was a, an expert in Soviet economics. And uh, the Russians at the time also had their own joke. He says, all in all, seasonally adjusted February was a cold month in <laughs> Russia. I'd love to be a statistician in another life, I think. (laughs) It's a fun job. Oh, yes. Actually, Peter, uh, sorry, I'm I'm taking this a little bit of of time. But the first thing that I will do is to start quoting quarter on quarter annualized to anybody that will hear because it is (laughs) the most meaningless artifact ever. Okay, and I'll, I won't tell you what I will do with uh, economists when they come to buy a used car from me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll end up giving it away. And this, yeah. this, uh, this core rate, though, in the UK, uh, it's, uh, it's a problem, isn't it? It's going up. It just shows that um, under, underlying inflationary pressures are increasing. It's becoming more and more embedded in the economy. Yeah, very much so. And this is a place where I do think interest rates do need to continue to rise, just based on the fact that inflation rates remain extremely high. Um, and maybe part of it's due to currency weakness, but you know that there is serious issues over there in terms of inflation, and it's hurting a lot of people. Um, obviously, I've got a lot of family in the UK, and the numbers that they tell you, like what they're paying compared to what they were a year ago, mm. it's. I think it's actually worse than eight point seven percent. And you know, uh, I'll give you an example. Like from my brother, you'll tell me his coffee that used to cost him six pounds is now costing him twelve pounds. That's 100% inflation. That's not 8.7%. Mm-hmm. His energy bill's gone up 300%. Uh, I, I will add to that. Uh, 
uh, I have a flat in the UK, yeah. and yeah. the the, the um, uh, energy bills are absolutely astronomical, and we use it we use it very carefully, and we're yeah. very careful yeah. at what we do, and uh, they have easily doubled. Yeah, no, it's three hundred percent. Energy bills are up three hundred percent. So it's no, where they're getting the eight point seven. It's like I want to know what the what stuff the that's going stuff down, is going is down is to get you back to the eight point seven. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? They take out the things that go up in the calculations. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Energy, energy. Energy. No, nobody, nobody needs nobody to eat, needs and, to eat and nobody and needs to stay warm. So it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I think uh, to answer your question, they do need to look, they do need to raise interest rates, and I think they need to be a lot more aggressive than they have been. Again, it may not be a political winner, but you've got to do that because you've got to start getting inflation under, under control over there. I want to ask you both about a couple of movements, interesting movements that are going on in the financial markets. We talked a bit about some of them um, earlier. First of all, the dollar, it's hit its highest level since March. But as part of that, the offshore renminbi, it's now at its lowest level of the year, um, has fallen uh, to about 7 uh, 7.06.5 against the US dollar in offshore markets. That's its weakest level since December 2022. Andrew, this has some implications, doesn't it, for, for policy um, on the mainland? And I, I imagine that the PBOC is watching this very closely. Yeah, well, there, there are two things to observe here. Let's not forget that the PBOC has actually been cutting interest rates, again, with Japan. I love that. Two of the major, most important central banks in the world are doing exactly the opposite of what... Uh, the the Fed and the European Central Bank are doing, they are cutting, or at least they are not increasing interest rates. So the differentials have been working against uh, the RMB. And the second point is, is uh, very quietly, they don't mind seeing weakening, given that the exports took uh, to quite uh, quite a beating. And also very quietly, actually, and there has been, not been a great deal of comment on that, there has been very steep declines in foreign exchange reserves in uh, in, in, in China with some recovery but not recovery yet to its peak. So, yes, I think the PBOC doesn't mind seeing the, the yen uh, weaken. Nitin, Sorry, what, the RMB. The RMB, yeah. Nitin, what, what do you think? Does this cause a few problems for policymakers? They want to sort of ease policy, don't they, to try and um, deal with the weakening, uh, weakening economy. Does this complicate matters for them? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, again, I'm on Andrew's side. I think over here, if you look at the export markets, they've been weak. So a weak yen, I mean, a weak yuan, I've just done the same mistake with the yen, uh, a weak yuan actually helps China on that basis. And they need, they do need to start stimulating their economy in some way. You can't just rely on you know, domestic consumption when you've got massive youth unemployment, you've got a declining population, you've got you know exports declining. There's a whole number of factors over there that they've got to uh, sort out. And I think it starts with trying to bring in money, and bringing in money means that you've got to start manufacturing and bringing, you know, exporting to the world again. How they do that, that's anyone's guess, because I think once it moves, it's moved. Um, so you've got to figure out new industries that you can start, you know, creating to export from. But, you know, obviously the weak yuan does help on that, uh, that factor, I mean, on that basis, in the sense it makes things cheaper for people overseas to buy from them. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was in the metals markets. There's some interesting moves there. Copper fallen below $8,000 a tonne for the first time uh, since November um, last year. And also other industrial metals as well are down. Zinc dropped almost 3% and it's at its lowest level in nearly three years. Nickel and aluminium are at their lowest level since September and October, respectively. Um, Andrew, Dr. Copper, the uh, the metal with a PhD in economics, is this signalling something to us about um, global demand and particularly the state of demand um, on the mainland? 
Yeah, but again, this is uh, no PhD in uh, in uh, Nobel Prize economics, because copper is used primarily in two areas. It's used in uh, construction, because pipes uh, are made out of copper, and of course, all the electrical wiring in construction is made out of copper. So construction, strangely enough, is not just cement and bricks so that it demands. It demands a great deal of, uh, of copper. Uh, uh, well, right across the world has, uh, has been taken quite a bit, in and, partic and particularly in China. And uh, then the copper is being used in form of alloys in other things, not so much in car building or in, uh, in, uh, in small electrical goods. But then, yes, okay, it reflects definitely what's happening in China and quite potentially what's happening in, uh, in the United States, and also the pulse is construction. Nitin, should we be taking something from this? I mean, copper's down now over 7% on the month. Is it an indicator of, um, of demand on the, on the mainland, as some people are, are saying, and that maybe you know, people are getting quite gloomy about the economy on the mainland? Is, is this a reflection of that? Yeah, I mean, copper actually, I believe... It's always been thought of as the barometer of what's going on in the world economy, not just the mainland economy. So the fact it's falling suggests there's global issues. Um, China, obviously, is probably the biggest factor. And like I said, just in the answer uh, in the question before, there there's a lot of problems going on in China that they need to sort out from an economic basis. Um, and this just is another you know sign that or another sign showing what the issues are. But I think it's more broad than just China. I think there is global issues. Obviously, there is talk of recession in the states, whether it's you know going to be a large recession, a small recession, but I think most people are in consensus there will be some sort of recession. Um, so I think both factors, I mean, China and US are coming into play here, and you're just seeing it reflected in the copper prices. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard the Nissin Dialdas, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. <laughs> I'm joined now by Lawrence Yu, who is Executive Director at Civic Exchange. Morning, Lawrence. Morning, Peter. Now, when we've, uh, when we've spoken before, we've talked quite a bit about uh, what's going on on the mainland. We, we, we were just talking about the weak renminbi and that a reflection of um, the, the mainland economy. What, what are you seeing there? So for this perspective, I think actually China is trying to restructure in the economy at this moment. Maybe I can give you an uh, example in the Greater Bay Area is um, even under the trade conference, the energy consumption of the petrochemical and chemical industry has even go by like 30% from like 2050 to 2020. And then it's as bad um, to go further increase over the next few decades because they really articulate that um, the manufacturing industry is a key um, growth area for the Greater Bay Area. And then currently, the Greater Bay, um, the petrochemical industry cons consume about like 18% of total energy used in Guangdong in 2020. And it is the number one sector for energy use mm -hmm. and then in the in the next couple of years there are like at least five large petrochemical base will in operation in the Guangdong 
So where does this leave us then? Because obviously your, your organisation, Civic Exchange, is very focused on um, achieving our carbon neutrality goals. And I know you lobby the government a lot. You issue a lot of reports on this. Where are we on the road to attaining carbon neutrality in Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area before 2050, which is the target, isn't it? That is the government's target. Yeah, actually the target in Hong Kong and the GBA is slightly different. Hong Kong is 10 years ahead than the national target. The, in, the cha- in the mainland, they use the 30, 60 target. 30 is mean for 30, 2030 to reach the carbon peak, and then 2060 to reach the carbon neutrality. But actually, when we analyze the energy consumption structure in Hong Kong, it's quite similar like in GBA, because Hong Kong and GBA is the energy, the power sector is account for like 74%, around 70% of total emission. Mm. And then in the future, um, actually, we also observe that the major reduction area for Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area are from the power sector. Mm. And are we on? So where are we in terms of getting to those uh, to getting to those targets? Are we on track or are we way off course? Um, so that I can say that actually the good news is Hong Kong and GBA are quite on track on our target. But the problem is because the, the Guangdong province already decided to develop the new industry like the petrochemical. Mm. So that the bad news is um, in 2060, there are around like 355 million tons of emission that we need to find another way to so this is extra it. this is extra yeah. on top of what was being calculated before that we've, yeah. that we've got to deal with so it's going to put the whole greater bay area definitely off track then isn't it in terms of achieving those goals by what 2060 yeah yeah so that we definitely need to identify an option that's why in the latest research that a joint collaboration between civil exchange and the well resources institute and then we identify that if the GBA want to achieve the carbon neutrality goal by 2050, like what Hong Kong is doing now. Every year, the annual emission reduction is should be around 16%, mm-hmm. 16%. That is a massive reduction. Mm. So then that means we've got to find new ways, other ways of achieving those reductions. So so let's explore a couple of them. If, if you look at Hong Kong and Shenzhen, densely built up areas the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions surely comes from all the buildings uh, that that we have so what can we do there to try and uh, reduce um, all the emissions that are coming from those buildings and make those buildings uh, more environmentally friendly Mm, so this is a very good question and then actually a lot of people already think about any kind of technology or iot technology can Mm. really help us but the problem is Everything costs you money. You mm-hmm. need, at the old day is, the asset owner need to pay the investment from their pocket. But actually, Hong Kong is a very great financing hub. We definitely can think about more innovative, green and sustainable finance innovation to help us to pay around like US 1.84 trillion investment gap from now to 2060. 1.84 trillion investment gap. Yeah, that is huge. That's huge. Yeah, it's around 1% of current GDP from now to 2060. Mm. 
So you mentioned technology. There must be a better way of, of using technology. I mean, I would have thought we could use things like mobile apps like Alexa and, and Google um, to, to, so that you can look at your buildings, so that building managers, shop owners, for example, restaurants um, can get more information about the actual buildings that they're using and, and sort of optimize better um, sort of the energy management, if you like, the energy efficiency of those buildings. That technology is there now, isn't it? So we, we must be able to use it. Yeah, and then the advantage of adopting technology is you can help yourself to create a credibility and then also help the bank to identify your action, your decision. Is this a good decision? Mm-hmm. And then they, you can get a cheaper money and then to mm-hmm. help you um, to improve your energy efficiency at the meantime is to help the bank to avoid like critique by some organization they are greenwashing their business mm. so that if we can create a, like a gba database and then that can super helpful for like the bank fi and then also the access owner to collaborate together and then pay the externality Mm. I mean, and if you look at Hong Kong, we've got what something like twenty thousand restaurants in in Hong Kong. They some of them are small restaurants, but there must be ways because if, if, even if you just turn your air conditioning down a couple of degrees, you you can save what ten percent on your electricity consumption, your energy consumption. So using the technology to help people do that, surely those are the things that are going to make the big difference, aren't they? Overall, in terms of uh, meeting our targets. Yeah, definitely. However, is like like what you say is around ten percent. Is no one really know exact number, the effectiveness of the technology. That's why also people is so hesitate to in, to invest on the technology. But in the future, if we can set up a more scientific guidance for different sector like the energy sector. And then also the transport sector, and then also for like the restaurant, different commercial sector, that will help them to really understand the impact of their investment. And because one one set one thing is like we cannot manage what we, we don't measure. So that is like if we can really measure it, create an evidence base, and then that can really helpful for people to create their own transition plan. Mm. Now, now you mentioned the cost of of the transition for the Greater Bay Area to carbon neutrality. You said, I think, 1.8 trillion US dollars between, what, 2020 to 2060. That's the the period that they've got to get there. How is that going to be financed? Actually, we can consider this is a huge investment opportunity because this can really, like, help the bank and FI to find and figure out their new business through the transition to zero carbon in the future. And then if we can really like develop some transition relays that financing to financial two boss, that we really definitely can scale up and accelerate um, the transition in that area. And then eventually is once we create good reputation and then other China mainland city or like the city in the Southeast Asia will come Hong Kong and then identify the fundraising funding mm. source and then fundraising here and then we vitalize our FI and banking industry. Mm. I mean, it must be a good opportunity because investors, customers, consumers 
are becoming more and more interested in ESG, that it's an important consideration now for investors in making their investment decisions. And, and also, you know, you look at the capital markets, you look at stock exchanges, they're concerned about companies, um, ESG performance, about the performance of particular brands. This must be a good opportunity now to go and raise money from those investors who are interested and are concerned about ESG considerations. Yeah, definitely. And then also it's like Hong Kong can be one very good position to help us to make sure everyone speak the same language. And then I observed that HKEAs and HKMA are try hard to make sure everyone are speak same language and then try also to connect the technical people like the engineer speak same language as like the FI, the banker, and then also the finance analyst to make sure they can really understand what they are doing afterwards and then that can really drive a collaboration between two really different sectors. And what's the barriers then to achieving these goals? What are are the hurdles we've got to overcome? So there are a couple hurdles. The first one is we are lack of the scientific guidance for the transition plan. Secondly is we don't have a clear definition what is the transition activities. And then also the third one is we still not sufficient cost region collaboration. So how do we overcome this? So maybe for the first one, the scientific guidance, we definitely can use some like um, science-based targets or mm. like the TCFD, this kind of tools to really help us to cre- help the corporate to create a transition plan. And then also for the transition activities is, I know that the HKMA, according to their last year's their annual report, they will come out a consultation around the mid of this year's um to really consult the community about how the Hong Kong Common Ground Taxonomy look like. Mm. And then the finally is not just the government speak to the Greater Bay Area, the industry also should more active to identify how they can collaborate speak more with the stakeholder or like the same industry people in the Greater Bay Area, and then they gradually will suck out a solution. I'm surprised in some ways that we don't have enough of the scientific capabilities that that we need, given that Hong Kong wants to be uh, an innovation and technology hub for the region. We have areas like the Science Park, which is full of companies uh, that that, that are um, uh, ESG-friendly. The Science Park itself, I mean, the whole area, isn't it? It, It's just full of ESG sort of initiatives. So you would think that we will be able to attract that uh, scientific capability that we need. Um, definitely we can attract it if we can really set up a more um, detailed transition pathway for all Hong Kong. Because when you look back to like the Climate Action Plan published by the Environmental Bureau at year 20 and 21, actually for our decarbonization pathway, we only have three points. The first point is year 2020. And the second point is year 2035. And then mm. the final point is 2050. So that this is not sufficient provide guidance for the business sector to really like forecast the field, how, what is the business environment, and then what is the cost, and then what is the decarbonization effort they need to plan from now to future. Because the plan, like the, like the energy investment, it's 
is a very long investment period to build a power plant at least for 10 to 15 years or like to invest in like to setting up a SBTI target at least cost you for one or two or three years before you really can get the approval so that is like Hong Kong definitely need to create our own sector pathway to make sure that one key factor in the common ground taxonomy, which is the technical screening, able to really well execute in Hong Kong. Lawrence, thank you very much indeed for coming in this morning. Thank you so much. That's Lawrence Liu, who is Executive Director at Civic Exchange. And if you want some more information on some of the topics that we've been talking about today, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which is on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Thank you for listening this morning. There's no Money Talk tomorrow, as it's a holiday here in Hong Kong for the Buddha's birthday. I'll be back on Monday. And joining me then will be Alex Wong, who is Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet, with a view from mainland China. China is Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. Have a great long weekend. Money Talk 